Well, what a great week we've had so far, and I'm excited today and uh, as we conclude our Global Impact Week, and that's, uh, that's our heart. That's our heart, to have, have an impact. In fact, that's the word that the Lord gave to me for the year 2018, the word impact, and so we want to have an impact locally and globally. So today we're excited to, and privileged today to have a very, very special guest with us today. Jeff Dove is with us to speak, president of Bible Alliance, an incredible uh, part of uh, Fire Bible that we've talked about. And uh, so I don't want to take his time this morning. I want you just to welcome him. I want him to come take his liberty in the Lord. Amen. Would you make our friend uh, Jeff Dove welcome this morning? God bless you, Brother Jeff. Good morning, church. Isn't it great to be in the house of God? Isn't it great to be the house of God? Amen? (laughs) Great facility, beautiful church. Praise God. Father, help us today as we speak to your children, Lord, and encourage them on a path that they've already chosen. Following the leadership of Pastor Mike and Don, Lord, you have taken them to great heights in giving and going and sharing both at home and around this world. So, Father, we pray that today... We would be encouraged in that as we take steps of faith to partner with you, Lord, to reach into the places that have yet to be touched. Help us to do that, sir, we pray in the name of Jesus the Christ. And the church said? Amen. 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 Well, as Pastor said, my name is Jeffrey Dove. I'm the husband of but one wife. Can you say amen to that? (laughs) Drug that poor little blonde all over the planet. And uh, for 40, was it, 43 years this year. And I can't believe she's still married to me. Of course, <laughs> she is getting the yard fixed up, so I, maybe after that I'll, she'll let me go. But it's we've got two great kids, and they're producing grandbabies. Can you say amen, Grandpa and Grandma? Got six grandkids, and when these kids were up here on the front, I got to thinking about that. And, uh, you know, I, I hardly got to go to anything that my kids did. I was busy saving the world for Jesus. I didn't have time for that. I go to everything my grandkids do now. And uh, they're just, they reminded me of that. It's so awesome to be there. As Pastor said, you've been great supporters of us building fire Bibles. How many of you know what a fire Bible is? Okay, quite a few of you do. used to be called the Full Life Study Bible, and for a while it was known as the Life in the Spirit Application Bible. But internationally, this book is known as the Fire Bible. It is simply a Bible we take in a vernacular text, in a text of a language group of people, and we'll add 75 articles. We'll add commentary on every page. We'll put introductions at the beginning of a book to tell what the history of that book was. And then we put a concordance in there, cross-references, theme finders, color maps. A typical Bible has 900,000-plus words in a Bible. A fire Bible has 2.25 million words in it. So there's a lot of explaining that goes into that Bible. Amen? And some of you say, well, Jeff, what's so important about that? I've got a dozen Bibles at my house. I'll bring them in next week. We'll just ship them on overseas. We'll We'll just give them my extra Bibles. How many of you know most of the world doesn't understand English? It's not their first language. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the service as we go along. But if it's in their own language and explained to them, then all of a sudden it begins to make sense. It begins to touch their hearts, touch their lives. Acts, the eighth chapter. You remember the story where the Ethiopian eunuch from the court of Candace the queen was on his way back home from Jerusalem as he had been worshiping. 
And God took Philip out of a red-hot revival and said, I want you to go and join yourself to that chariot and explain things to him. Now, that's, that's redneck for explain. Explain things to that man because he's hungry and he's searching, and I want you to do it. So it said, I love this part. It says, Philip ran and caught up with the chariot, climbed up in it, and asked him that question. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? It's the Word of God. We understand the Word of God is mighty and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, but it can be a strange book if it hadn't been explained to you. Amen? My good friend, Brother Ron Maddox, says there's nothing more dangerous than an untrained Pentecostal preacher who hadn't had things explained to him. So he explained it to the Ethiopian, who probably even in those days spoke the ancient language of Amharic. And uh, after that was done, he came to some water and he says, What prevents me from being baptized right now? They got off the chariot, got into the water. So you see the explanation of the word leads to obedience to the word, which leads to the growth of the church of Jesus Christ. That's why I love the fire Bible so much. It normalizes and explains the doctrines and Christian practice about what we need to do. Some of of the stories that come out about people that are trying to pastor without a Bible let alone a fire Bible, is exciting. There was a fellow down in Mozambique some years ago, and uh, he'd been saved under a tree by a revival. Another African pastor had come, held a crusade there under the tree, and he began to preach, and this guy was the first one to come forward. Two weeks later, they said, you've been saved longer than anyone else. You're the pastor now. He said, but, 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 no buts. They got to have a pastor. You've been saved two weeks. You're it. So he started reading. He said, well, you know, the end of the book is always the most important part. So he went to the last book of the Bible that he was able to read at that time, which, of course, is the book of Revelation, the Revelation of John, and about Jesus Christ. A confusing book if you've been in the kingdom your whole life at times. And he starts reading it, and he reads the part that says, Wow, unless you have the mark of mankind, 666, on your forehead, you can't buy or sell in the markets. And I want my people to be able to buy or sell in the markets. So bring in the charcoal, let's write 666 on our foreheads, and we'll be known as the 666 Assembly of God Church. How many of you know he needed some explaining? <laughs> it wasn't too much longer. His second language was Portuguese, and he got a Portuguese fire by one. He read the notes on the mark of the beast, and he said, oh, my God, what have I done? They had revival in that place. They erased their heads, and they changed the name of their church. <laughs> I'm sure it was called the Grace Place or something like that. And, uh, but you, 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 say, you laugh at that, but if you read the Scripture unexplained, it can be a daunting thing. It can be difficult to understand what's really Old Testament and under before the the grace of Jesus Christ. What was pre-law? What was post-law? What was the sacrifice? What was the covenant of Abraham? You can go on and on and on. It's needed everywhere. It's needed now. And you, by your faithful giving, this is a fire Bible church. Amen, Pastor? You guys have helped us with dozens of fire Bibles through the years. And because of your giving and your faithfulness to giving to this program, this ministry... We have now finished and dedicated our 49th language of the fire Bible. Can you say amen? (laughs) Amen. The average cost to produce a fire Bible is close to $450,000 to $500,000. So to have 49 of them done shows that the body of Christ values training of leaders and church planners across the world. And I thank you. I thank you for that. We like to say that $10 helps significantly to put one of these into a pastor's hands. But how many of you know it takes a lot to get to that point? Amen? 
And you're helping us to do that by your faithful giving. It's needed now. It's needed everywhere. We just, at the beginning of January, I had the privilege to go to northern Burma. Anyone ever been to Makina? Northern Burma. Not, I don't see any hands here. I thought maybe we might have one in this kind of a crowd. But it's, it's not the end of the world, but you can see the end of the world from that porch. <laughs> and I was up there, and we had Lisu tribal speakers that came, and they got the Fire Bible in their language for the very first time in history. It's where the revival began was among the Lisu people in Burma back in the early 30s and late 40s when God poured out of his spirit upon that tribal group and the communists didn't like them, kicked them out of China. They came over to northern Burma and started to evangelize that country for Jesus Christ. But they'd had nothing in their language to that time. And so thank God you helped us to finish the Lisu tribal edition. I have the privilege of representing you, and I'll stand as they come across the stage, and and I get to put one into the hands of a local pastor who's the same as Pastor Mike or myself, slugging it out every day, preparing sermons, praying for the sick, doing the things that the pastors do, but they didn't have the tools necessary to make it all the way. And watch them as they come across. I put it in their hands and to see their faces. And I saw one guy come across there, and he had on these flip-flops and no socks, and, and you could tell he'd never had a pair of shoes on a day in his life. His toes were like this and gnarled from walking. If you've ever walked for 60 years in the dirt, you know what your toes are going to look like. And his hair was whopper-jawed. He hadn't been to the dentist in a while. And he comes across there, and he smiled a big smile. And I, I handed him the Bible, and he hugged it and went off the stage. And the man who was helping me, the Burmese fellow that was translating for me, he said, that man walked over 10 days to come and get that Bible. Over 10 days to come and get that Bible. Amen. To the Himalayan mountains, the foothills of the Himalayas, he came and he got that Bible for his church and for his believers. We had two more guys slipped across the border. They were in Yunnan province, China. They slipped across the border and came in. He said, we weren't invited, but we heard you were having a party. <laughs> Ever had that happen to you? <laughs> and they came up to the front and they said, there's a bunch of us Lisu still living in China. Can we take some back home with us? So we carted them up and sent them back. And who knows what that's going to do for that province in the nation of Asia. Together, we've put out 3 million plus in Chinese, 10 million of these Bibles worldwide, and now our 49th language is complete with 20 more languages yet to go. Pray with us that we'll be faithful to the end of the task. Amen? It's not about what you've done. It's about what's left to be done. Isn't that correct? So I won't bore you with all the languages we're going on, but we're, we're going to have a few. This morning, our focus is on our global impact. Our focus is on preparing for what we intend to do so that pastor and his ministry team will have a budget so they know how to give to people like us. They'll understand what your intentions are in your budget for the next year. They want to know what you think God is going to do through your circumstance over this coming year. And pastor's going to come at the close and he'll take up our faith promise for the year. But as as your missionary this morning, I'm not going to preach. I'm just going to tell you a couple of stories and ask you three questions for you to consider. The first question would be, Nam Nak Tao Dai. Nam Nak Tao Dai. How much do you weigh? And all the women are saying, none your business. Because <laughs> I found if a woman weighs 36 pounds, she's too heavy. They weigh 350 pounds or too heavy. Well, I served 20-some years in Asia. And I, I used to have to train missionaries. For 15 years, I prepared missionaries coming into Asia. And the first thing I told every single female was, no matter what you think about yourself, when you get to Asia, you're fat. Say, Jeff, don't talk like that. 
It's the reality. Asian people on a whole, especially Southeast Asia where I live, Bangkok, Thailand, the people are small. They're little. So even if you're a normal person, you're a big person. I said, you, if you can't laugh at yourself right now, you're not going to laugh at yourself when you're walking down the street and strangers are poking you and pinching you and trying to hug you and talking behind your back. You better get over your bad self now so that you can love them when you get there. So how much do you weigh? Nam nak tau dai. I was in an elevator in Bangkok, Thailand, and I'd been there long enough to learn the language and knew that particular dialect of Central Thai, and, and I'm on an elevator. Well, actually, the elevator opened up, and here's two young men in their service outfits, dark blue pants, trousers, and, and then white shirts, and they were both servers, and one's on the right, one's on the left. How many of you have been to Asia lately? The elevators are really small, and it says it'll hold 10 Asian people or one and a half big fat white guys from the States. <laughs> so here's these two little guys standing in there, and they, when, when the doors opened up and they saw me, they were just like, ooh. <laughs> and I stepped in right in between them. How many of you know that's the most uncomfortable feeling in the world is being trapped in an elevator, and you don't know what to say, you, don't know, you can't get out, you can't go away, and here's this big guy right in the middle of these two little guys. And so we're all doing what everyone does internationally in elevators. We're just standing there watching the numbers, click, click, thinking, how long is this going to take? And so the guy on the right, he's just looking straight ahead. He said, Kitwa nam nak taurai. In Thai, he would have said nam nak taurai. How much, how much do you think he weighs? <laughs> and the guy on the other side, he's looking straight ahead. They're not looking at me. Just, oh, my sap, my sap. I should been maqua bat sip kilo. It's probably more than 80 kilo. And the guy says, no, 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 no. I, th- I think it's more than, they're just jabbering away. And I'm listening to this dying inside <laughs> as they're discussing how fat I am. And they went on and on. And the one guy says, do you think it's possible he could weigh 100 kilogram, which is 225 odd pounds? I hadn't weighed 225 pounds since ninth grade in high school. And I'm listening to this. And so we get all the way up to the 11th floor where we were having this conference. And I got out, stepped out of the elevator, and I turned back around and held the door. And I looked into their eyes. If you're from Asia, you know eye contact is a funny thing you deal with. And and I looked straight in their eyes, and I said, you're both wrong. It's 145 kilo. (laughs) And you should have seen their mouths opened up, their eyes got big. And they said, you knew we were talking about you. You knew that. And they said, oh, we're sorry. Give me, give me some punishment, they're saying. I said, it's all right, guys. I just get to eat more often than you do. And for the next two or three days, as we were there at that conference, those guys would come up to me. I want you to know my glass was the first one filled. <laughs> I got the coffee. I got the biggest plate. I, those guys were taking care of me. And they came up to me one time, and they, just before the conference is over, and they said, uh, of course, they'd learned my name by then, Kunjef. Kunjef, they said, is it possible, can we just see if we can get our arms around you? <laughs> this is the stuff your missionaries live in. And I said, sure. So here I am in a restaurant in front of God and everybody with two strange local men trying to hug me. And they couldn't get their arms around me, but since they tried, they just started jiggling, and they thought that was funny. But the question is, how much, how much do you weigh? Are you, willing, are you willing to love others more than you love yourself? Because a lot of people would be offended by that activity. 
A lot of people would say they need to be polite. They, they don't need to talk like that. They don't need to go there. This is, it's about me. And a lot of the songs we sing, a lot of our personal prayers, it's about us. But when you get into the presence of God, like this one song we saw, I wanted to just bust loose because I was right with Isaiah in the temple. When he got into the presence of God, what God is saying to himself is, who will go for us and whom shall we send? Who will consider the loss more than they consider themselves? It's a question we have to ask ourselves. We'll never do what God has prepared for us to do in our faith promise for missions this morning until we say, It's not just about me. It's about those who have not yet been told. It's about the loss. Another question I'd like to leave you with is, how many people live inside of you? I was walking through the marketplace in northern Laos, and uh, around me there's about 1,000 people. They're speaking Vietnamese, Thai Dum, Thai Dang, Lao Lum, Lao Sung, Lao Tung, different, different languages, the Mong Dang, Mong Kao, Mong Fa, different, all these different dialects are being talking, and they're just jabbering away. And as you go through the marketplace, you get this distinct paranoid feeling that they're talking about you. Later on, when I could speak their language, I knew that they were talking about me. But I, I made up my own narrative because I was, had a fragile ego in those days. And I was walking through the marketplace, and they're just jabbering away. And so I thought, I know what they're saying. Look at him, how tall and handsome he is. He's like the elephant striding through the cane breaks of the jungle, mighty in his girth and his majesty. What I found out later on, they were saying was, wow, have you ever seen anyone that fat in your whole life? I wonder what it costs to feed him. And have you smelled him? It smells like he has meat two or three times a week. I didn't want to tell him until later that I had meat pretty much three times a day if I could get it. I'm walking through this milieu of of personalities and languages, and a little old grandma came walking up to me, and she'd lived her entire life doing nothing but planting rice. Have you ever seen them how they plant rice in Asia for the last 3,000 years? One stalk at a time. They'll take it out of a seed bed, put a little group of them together, and then they'll begin to just put them in one at a time after a time. And she'd been doing that for 80 years. When you think your job's tough, think of Grandma in the market in Laos. And she was all bent over with osteoporosis. And, and as she was coming up, she glanced up and saw this huge white guy. She'd never seen a white guy in her whole life. She saw me coming. She went, woo She looked at me. And, and rightly dividing that I couldn't understand what she was saying, she asked my translator, a young Buddhist monk by the name of Vian Kam. And she says, If it's possible, can I ask that big guy a question? And he says, sure, mother, you can ask him anything he wants. And she smiled real big, and I'll never forget her smile. She had about two, maybe three teeth, and she'd been chewing betel nut. Anyone familiar with betel nut? It's a red, mild narcotic that they chew, and it makes your gums turn black, and your tongue and your, your, makes your gums black, your tongue will swell. It makes you really not look good, but it's a mild narcotic for the pain for bad teeth. And, and they get addicted to it, so they chew it all the time. And so she looked up, and she smiled and wiped away the betel nut, and then she jammed her finger as hard as she could right into my belly button in front of God and everybody. She says, Jiao mi jiao how many? people live inside of you I know what she was thinking it must be a multi-family dwelling (laughs) there's an entire apartment complex in there way too much skin for just one body 
And I, you know, I should have been offended. I should have been angry. I asked my translator, I said, what is she doing? He says, I can't tell you. My face will break (laughs) from laughter. But I took that as a young missionary early on in my career. I took that as a voice of God speaking to me. How many of you know God can prophesy, not just from Assembly of God people? Do you realize that? He can prophesy through donkeys. He can prophesy through evil leaders. He can prophesy through grandma that's done nothing but plant rice her whole life. And she looked through me to the the breath of God where it says when, when God was creating mankind, it says he breathed into him the breath of what? Life? No. The breath of lives he breathed into mankind. I believe she was looking at me as your representative, as an Assemblies of God missionary. She was looking into me and says, how many people are going to come into the kingdom because you obeyed and someone paid and sent you to come? How many people are in you? Every missionary you send is a seed offering into the harvested, non-harvested area of the world. Some of our guys go in and they work with Bible schools. Some of them go in and they work with compassion programs with a national church. But many of our missionaries that are going out today are working in situations where no one has ever heard, not even the first time. Not even once in their own language has they been told about the Lord Jesus Christ. And although I love to laugh and I love to have a good time, when I, when I think about places like Mung Hiem, northern Laos, where there's never, even today, has never been a church. I don't care if it's Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Mennonite, what is, I don't care if it's Presbyterian, Assembly of God, there's never been any church ever in the history of the world in that village. And I say, God, we've done a lot in the Assemblies of God but we haven't done enough yet. Because until all hear, until everyone sees, I don't have enough people inside of me. I don't have enough to where I've been able to do that. Last question, I'll tell the story first and then ask you the question that this dear friend asked me. Concerning our faith promises, do they work? Do they really work? Does money end up becoming soul's in the kingdom. It's not about the money, it's about the obedience. Now, I don't know, some of you, $5 a month is going to be a sacrifice this morning. For some of you, 500 a month is not a sacrifice. You'll know your own resources, what you can do with God's help. So we're not saying what's valuable and what's not. We understand that Jesus sat by the offering plate. How many of you like to go on that offering? <laughs> Jesus sat by the offering plate, and he watched what they put in with supernatural insight. He saw what everybody gave. He said, oh, I, I don't know if I'd want to go to that church. <laughs> Jesus was there. It had to be a good church. But the point isn't how much are you giving. It's how much are you obeying. How much are you partnering with the Lord Jesus Christ? And your question to us as missionaries, and perhaps at times to pastors, does it really work? We went out in 1991 as brand-new rookie missionaries. I knew nothing. I knew nothing about missions. I'd only had two classes in missiology. It was introduction to world missions, and I took the same class twice because I failed it the first time. <laughs> I can remember when my, the teacher brought me in, Sister Eleanor Gwines. Some of you are familiar with SAGU will remember the Gwines. 
and she brought me in at the end of that class, and I was just a young kid working nights and then going to school in the morning, and that was the 7.30 class. How many of you know that's the death class for most young kids? And, and you just go in and try to stay awake. Well, I'd been up all night working at the Rail Haven Motel, and I, that was my first class. That was a great place to sleep because I was called to preach the gospel in the United States of America, and I didn't care about the world. I knew where I was going. So after it was over, that class was over, they posted the grades out in the hallway in those days, and I went and looked, and my grade wasn't there. And I went back in to talk to Sister Gwines. I said, ma'am, I, I didn't see my grade on the bulletin board. She said, well, Jeffrey, I didn't want to embarrass you. I said, you can't embarrass me. It's world missions. What do I care? I'm called to be a pastor. And she said, well, I had to give you a D. I said, well, okay, that'll transfer if I need to. (laughs) I wasn't all that concerned, and she begins to cry. This is what will stick with a 17-year-old kid. She begins to cry, and she began to prophesy, and she said, I see in you someday that you're going to have an impact in missions far beyond what you can think and say. I looked at her and said, Sister Gwines, you can write this down. I will never be a missionary. (laughs) How many of you know, never, say never to the voice of God. Never. I had to take that class again because it wouldn't transfer. I found out you have to have a C or above to transfer to another school. (laughs) It's terrible. The point I'm making is I'm not a professional missionary. I pastored for 10 years, loved both the churches that I was allowed to pastor during those days. And when we left home, we went out not knowing what to do. We'd never learned another language. I'd never been out of the United States unless you count Canada and Kentucky as foreign countries. I'd never been anywhere. When I pastored and we went on a mission trip, we took our people to Cleveland. If you've ever been to inner city Cleveland, you'll understand why that's a mission field. We didn't know what we were going to do, but people believed in us. And they saw in us the vision that something's fixing to happen in Southeast Asia. And we want to be a part of it. I'm, I'm so excited to stand before you and tell you this morning that we finished the North Korean New Testament fire Bible. And the Old Testament is now going to be complete, Lord willing, in the next three months. It's going to go to press. And I'm declaring to you this morning, right now, as a man of God, as a missionary of the Assemblies of God, there's going to come a revival to the nation of North Korea. The greatest revival, perhaps, that we've seen in our lifetime. And for once, we're going to be ready with some material to put into their hands. It's not possible to get it in now, but when it begins to take place and the revival begins to happen, you've played a part in making that happen. We'll be ready this time. We'll have the book ready to put into their hands. Well, we got to Laos, and, and after, after about 15 months, we hadn't won one person to Christ. Not a very effective missionary, right? And uh, I received a letter from the governor's office And he said, your visa's been revoked. You're being kicked out of the country. You're done. Too much Christian activity. I hadn't won one person to Christ. I couldn't figure out how that was too much Christian activity. But he gave me a list of nine charges against us. Our organization was called the Organization of God. And uh, he said, the Organization of God is, is this and this and this and this, and we don't like it, so we're communist. You're not. You're gone. So I thought to myself, you know what? I know the culture well enough now. And I'd practiced enough loud where I felt like I could just drift my way through it. I prepared it, and I called a dinner and called in my 25 closest associates that I'd made over the last 15 months. And I gave a dinner, and I knew that in the Southeast Asian culture, if you pay for the meal, 
you get to talk. And they have to listen. It's extremely impolite to not listen. So I sat at the head of the table. I paid the bill. We had, we had whatever it was we ate that night. It was pretty good stuff. It was in a, a very, very humble market setting. And I stood up and I said, Pinong Tang Lai, Pom Yaks Ati by Vruang Pachao. I said, My dear friends, I want to explain the story of God. And the man to my right, his name is Valun. His wife's name is Neelan Dawn. Ladies, you, you would love to have that. And it means eternally beautiful. <laughs> I'll never forget her name. So Valun reaches over and grabs me by the shirt and he says, Mr. Dove, in Lao, he says, Mr. Dove, sit down. Sit down. He knew I was fixing to break the law. I was not allowed to do what I was about to do. I figured I'm kicked out now. I'm going out in a blaze of glory, right? (laughs) I'm going to preach at least once before I get kicked out of this place. He said, please sit down, Mr. Dove. I said, nope, nope. I paid for the meal. It's my right. How many of you know Americans love our rights? It's my right. I'm going to preach. If nobody wants to hear it, I'm preaching for a newsletter, (laughs) if for nothing else. And I got up there, and I said, he said, please Jeffrey, call me by my first name, which is very intimate in that society. He said, please sit down. Let me talk in your place. I thought, what in the world is he going to say? He was an ex-prison guard during the Vietnam War, actually guarded some of our men in the prison camps of northern Vietnam. Trained commando could have killed me with his bare hands alone. He stood up and he says, we all know Jeffrey and Michelle. They're children. They've lived with us for this last year and a half. And he wanted to share with us a story, but we all know he would get in trouble. So I'm going to tell the story. I thought, how would he know the story? And he said, this is what the Christians believe. The Christians believe there's only one God. You can just see their faces just like, get out. Only one? Only one God. And he had one son. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he loved humanity so much that he sent his son from heaven where God lives to live with us for over 30 years. And I'm sitting here thinking, where in the world did he hear this from? He said, and the Christians believe that he grew up, he lived there for 30 some years, and then the government killed him. (laughs) I just love the way he said that. The government killed him and they nailed his body to a tree. And after he was good and dead, they took him out and they buried him because that's what Christians do. They don't pile soap. They don't burn the body. They bury him in the ground. And they're just, it was, everything was new. They had never heard this story ever, not one time. He said, but the Christians believe that after three days, the stone rolled away from the cave and Jesus came back to life and just like, oh my God, he didn't. <laughs> you can see their faces. It was incredible to watch him as they heard that story the first time. He said, and then he prayed with his people, the sons of Oak, the, the disciples. And he said, you follow and you tell this. And that's what Jeffrey is, is a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what he wanted to share with you today. He sat down and I said, Valoon, where in the world did you get that story? Because I've never been able to share that with you. He said, when I was a kid before the Vietnam conflict, I traveled down to see my grandparents down south of Laos in Savannah, Savannah Ket province. And while I was there, we watched. We were playing on the Mekong River banks, and we watched two old ladies being carted across in a canoe from, the, from Thailand across the border into Laos 
And we went over to see what they were doing. And they got out and they put up three sticks and they tied them together. And they put this flat piece of wood up there and they put some cloth over it. And he said, we thought as kids it was magic paper. Because <laughs> they put these pictures on there. How many of you have ever heard of a flannel graph? You remember those days? You didn't have all the video stuff. And they said, they put the pictures up of these people. I heard this story one time when I was a kid 40 years ago. And I knew that if anyone ever came to where I live, that this would be God saying to me, this is the true way. This is a correct story. And I thought to myself, who knew that those two ladies, way back when, sent out by some church, crossed the river illegally, told a story on the Laos side, they got in the boat and went back home, could touch a city in northern Laos some 40, 45 years later. Who knew? Well, sitting at that table was a young teacher by the name of Somjan. Somjan had been trained in the old Soviet Union in Moscow. The only educated woman in that city that I know at that level. She heard the story for the very first time. When we left, we got kicked out. We left. They packed her stuff up, put it on an old Russian biplane, and off it went. On the way out, I gave her a book. I gave her a Bible. I said, Som John, read this book. Don't tell anyone you got it, but read it. It'll do you a lot of good. <laughs> I left, and long story short, came back some three months later to check on a project, a building project we still had going on. She met me at the barbed wire fence on this little airstrip in the northern Anamite mountain chain on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. She had her hands on the barbed wire, just smiling ear to ear. <laughs> I got off that little plane and walked across the tarmac, and she grabbed a hold of me. She said, oh, Jeffrey, I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you. I said, okay, what's, what's going on? She said, I read that book that you gave me. I said, which part did you read? I'm thinking, I didn't tell her anything. She said, like any book, I started at the left and I read to the right. I read the whole thing. She read the book and she said, I concluded that this is the God that Valoon, the man in the marketplace, had told us a story about. I went back to my house I swept my floor, which I get a kick out of that because she has a dirt floor in her house. She said, I swept my floor. I put on my best clothes. I lit the jaw sticks. I turned the idols away so they wouldn't be looking at me. <laughs> and I laid myself face down in the dirt, and I began to pray. The God whom Jeffrey and Michelle serve, the God that I've read about in this book, would you please forgive my sins and the sins of my ancestors and come and live in my heart? And let me be the first one. Let me be first. She said, but Jeffrey, before you left, you didn't give me the words. And it's important that I know the right words. And I said, where do you think Jesus lives now? She said, he's in my heart every day. I said, you had some pretty good words, Some John. <laughs> well, Some John went on to plant a church, First Assembly of God, Ponsawan Sion Kwang. Say that three times and you'll get filled with the Holy Ghost. <laughs> She planted a church in that city. She now has a couple other pastors working with her, several hundred in that church. They have a children's home going there. She studied the ICI materials in the Thai language. And then later on, years down the road, God has a plan for our faith promises, folks. Years down the road, when I needed someone to be the final editor of the full-life study Bible, the fire Bible in the Lao language, guess who it was? Somjan Kompilawong from Siangkwang, Laos. You see, God has a plan. If we'll be faithful and we'll do what he's asked us to do, we'll say what he's asked us to say. We'll go where he's asked us to go. Some sow, some water. God will always give the increase. Amen. Pastor, if you'll come.
Wow, thank you, Brother Jeff. Did you appreciate this today? Amen. Wasn't it a challenge? Isn't it exciting to be a part of something great? We're a part of something great. You hear me talk about it all the time, but it's not all about just what's happening on the inside of these four walls. And some pretty exciting things happen here every Sunday, but it's not just that. Literally, literally, the fingerprints of the Grace Place are all around the world. 